This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Welcome in to Outkick the Show. I'm your fearless leader, Clay Travis. I hope all of you are having a fantastic Monday. Probably not if you are Florida State fans. By the way, some of you may see right now watching on video, Clay, you're wearing your Athens football shirt. Why is that? Because I don't think Florida State got screwed. I actually think Georgia is the most screwed fan base in the college football playoff rankings. I'll explain why. I'll walk you through why the committee, at least for its top four, did the best job they could. I'll tell you my top ten. We'll talk about uh, Doug Burgum is out of the race. Uh, We'll talk about the current state of the Republican primary race six weeks until the Iowa caucus. Um, We will talk about how masking kids made zero impact, according to an exhaustive study. Uh, Deadspin. Demand for an apology and a retraction by the nine-year-old's family. They have retained legal counsel and are preparing to file a lawsuit. Otherwise, uh, good for them. Belated reaction to the DeSantis versus Newsom debate, which I watched in New York City um, uh, from my hotel room. uh, And my final outkick top 10 of the quote-unquote regular season, plus Joe Biden has lower numbers right now than any first-term president in any of our lives. We're talking about the weakest incumbent ever. I will break all of that down for you. But we begin with the fallout over the decision to pick the college football playoff teams. Many of you, I hope, uh, we're sitting around late on Saturday night when your boy, credit to the staff uh, who work on OutKick, when I saw that Alabama beat Georgia, you could see that there was likely going to be an issue for the playoff committee. Uh, because if Florida State won, which they did, congrats for getting past uh, uh, Louisville 16-6 to and winning the ACC championship game, you could see emerging a really difficult decision for the college football playoff committee. 12 and 1 Alabama, 12 and 1 Texas, or 13 and 0 uh, Florida State. Pretty much unanimous agreement that 13 and 0 Michigan and 13 and 0 Washington were in. The question was what is the analysis? How should they break things down? And I laid out on Saturday as soon as the Florida State game was over why I believed the final ranking should be number one overall Michigan, number two Washington, number three Texas, and number four Florida State. I uh, Sorry, number four Alabama over Florida State. And I laid out exactly why I believed that was the right result. Michigan, Washington, Texas, Alabama, and ended up being right. And that was at the time evidently considered to be a controversial opinion on the college football playoff rankings. Because I got in bed right after I did that show, and FanDuel had hung odds, and they had Florida State to make the playoff at minus 800. And I hope some of you jumped on after I shared this, because you could get 
plus 550, I believe it was, or plus 525 odds that Florida State wasn't going to make the playoff. I said, go hop on this. I shared it with you all. I said, I think this is a bad number. Ended up being correct. Alabama gets in over Florida State. I think it's the right call. And I'm going to use an analogy here for you that is like 20 years in the past. What the college football playoff committee did is not remarkably outrageous. In fact, college basketball has been doing it for the NCAA tournament for a long time. And I'll give you a prime example. Uh, Kenyon Martin was the best player in college basketball. This is probably around the year 2000 or so. Somebody can look up the exact year. The Cincinnati Bearcats, for much of the year, were the number one team in college basketball. And then Kenyon Martin, I believe it happened in uh, the tournament that year. Kenyon Martin broke his leg, and he was out for the rest of the season. And as a result, Cincinnati went from what would have otherwise been the number one, I think they were going to be like the number one overall team, certainly a number one seed. And if I remember correctly, the college basketball committee dropped them all the way to a four seed. And there was some grumbling about that, some disappointment, but people understood that Cincinnati, with and without Kenyon Martin, who was probably the best player in college basketball that year, was a massive difference to that basketball team. And they went from around the number one overall team to somewhere in the neighborhood of a four seed, which means they would have been seeded uh, somewhere between 13, 14, 15, or 16 best team in college basketball. And then Cincinnati went out and lost either a first or second round game. I don't remember which one. And their season ended, and a lot of people said, you know what, the college football playoff committee got it right. Now, Florida State had the opportunity, after Jordan Travis was injured against North Alabama, they had the opportunity against Florida and against Louisville to demonstrate that their team was basically the same with or without Jordan Travis. In other words, they had an opportunity, just like Ohio State did in 2014, to demonstrate that they were actually one of the four best teams in college football. Tate Rotemaker got injured, sack backup. He wasn't very good against Florida. Completed less than 50% of his passes. Yes, Florida State won, but anybody who watched that Florida-Florida State rivalry game saw that Florida State was a substantially diminished team. Then he got a concussion, and he was out, not able to play. They brought in their third-string quarterback, and the team suffered significantly. There was, at least in my opinion, a touchdown difference, which is a huge amount of overall talent, a touchdown difference between Florida State with and without Jordan Travis. That's just the reality. And so... I don't believe Florida State, based on what we saw in the game against Florida and the game against Louisville, deserved to be ranked among the four best teams in the country. Now, here is where I think the college football playoff committee could have adjusted things a bit more. They could have dropped Florida State after the Florida game outside of the top four and said, we need to see more from Florida State in the ACC championship game in order to believe that Florida State is still a top-four team. 
probably would have made a little bit of sense to do so. Uh, but I think they got the top four teams, given the circumstances, correct, because it's always about balancing most deserving and best. Now, the reason why I'm wearing this Georgia shirt is not a lot of talk about the Georgia Bulldogs. Georgia was the overall number one team in college football coming into the final week. They lost to Alabama by three points in a neutral site game and then dropped all the way to number six. So the college football playoff committee said, after watching an entire regular season, we are convinced the Georgia Bulldogs are the best team in college football. Then Georgia loses a tough, hard-fought game against Alabama by three points in a neutral site venue, and they drop all the way to six? If anything, the team that actually has the most gripe, in my opinion, with the college football playoff committee is Georgia, who, by the way, opened as a 14-point favorite in the Orange Bowl over Florida State. Now, I'll talk about Georgia a bit more in a second, but a big part of my argument on Friday was who would Michigan rather play? If you let Michigan players, coaches, and fans all vote, would they have voted to play Florida State or would they have voted to play Alabama? In fact, there's video of Michigan reacting when Alabama is announced as their opponent because Michigan has been whipped solidly by the SEC every time they've played basically an SEC team in the Jim Harbaugh era. So I early preview, I think Alabama is going to beat Michigan. I believe the line is like Michigan minus one and a half or something like that. I think it'll be a low scoring game. I think Alabama will beat Michigan and advance to the national title game. Uh, but to me, that's kind of dispositive. Now, if you went solely with best teams, everybody can get fired up about this. When it gets clipped, you can get fired up reacting to it. If Vegas were analyzing the four most talented teams, it would be Alabama, Georgia, Michigan State, and Ohio State in no particular order. Those are the four best teams. But the course of the season is a balancing act. So if you only wanted Vegas to rank teams, that actual outcome wouldn't matter at all. Some people got fired up about this. Uh, Oregon lost as a nine-and-a-half-point favorite uh, to Washington on Friday in the Pac-12 title game. And some people said, oh, this proves how wrong Vegas was. Not necessarily. Washington has won two games by three points, but Oregon could easily come back if they played another week and win game three by double digits. In fact, even though they lost the first two games, Oregon would be favored in game three. And a lot of college football fans don't understand this because there aren't very many rematches in college football. So people think that whatever happened in the one game would just happen over and over and over again throughout history. Look, I think if Georgia played Alabama a hundred times, in the Georgia Dome or Mercedes-Benz Stadium or whatever it's called down there now, I think Georgia would win 55 or 60 of those games, and I think Alabama would win 40 or 45 of those games. I think if Oregon played Washington 100 times, I think that Oregon would win 
around 60 of those games and lose about 40 of them. People have this idea that probability doesn't exist in football because college football in particular rematches are rare, but actually rematches happen all the time in every other sport and the outcomes are wildly divergent. Think about the NBA or Major League Baseball or the NHL. That's where we have a seven-game series because a team can win or lose a game by 30 points and still lose the overall series. Um, Look at what happened, heck, in college football what feels like years and years ago now. Oh, what year was it? Like 2012, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Alabama lost at home in overtime 9-6, to if I remember correctly, against LSU in a 1v2 matchup. I was at that game. It was called the game of the century. Phenomenal atmosphere. LSU, Les Miles, they came on the road. I think it was the 2011 season, if I'm not mistaken. They came on the road, and LSU won that game at Bryant-Denny Stadium. Then they rematched in the national championship game. One versus two, it was Alabama against LSU, and LSU didn't even cross midfield, and Alabama destroyed them. What changed? Same two teams. Alabama lost at home by three, and then I think they won the national title game like 21-0 against an undefeated LSU team, and LSU didn't cross midfield. Alabama came back from losing the earlier game and absolutely dominated against LSU in the national championship game. Now, again, I was there sitting in the upper recesses of uh, the Superdome. That was so wild, if I remember correctly, and I think I do. That game was so wild, and New Orleans was so wild. I was out that night on Bourbon Street. LSU and Alabama fans everywhere. I have never seen a crazier environment in my life. My wife was down there with our oldest son, and I actually told her, I think it's the only time I've ever said it, I said, don't go out with him after dark. That's how crazy it was in New Orleans. Alabama, LSU fans everywhere, mass drunkenness, pure bedlam. I said to my wife, do not go outside after dark. The streets here are too crazy. When this game starts, it's going to be too wild. Just stay in the hotel room with our, I think it was like our three-year-old, three or four-year-old at the time. Uh, That's how crazy it was. Um, So that's what happens. Sometimes you get rematches. Somebody wins and absolutely smokes the team that they lost to earlier. Florida State was not a top-four team. In fact, my final top ten, I don't think I've given out my final top ten yet because I didn't write the starting 11 because once the playoff rankings come out, Nobody cares about anything. I would have had, again, you have to balance best and most deserving based on on on-field results. I would have had Michigan 1, Washington 2, Texas 3, Alabama 4. Smith will say, like, how did Texas get in? Texas beat Alabama head-to-head at Bryant-Denny by double digits. If Alabama is going to get in, and I think it was right of the committee to put Alabama in, then... Texas had to be in above Alabama because they both finished with the same record and head-to-head has to matter. The number one rule 
in every tiebreak scenario that I'm aware of that has ever existed, when you consider two teams with the same record, what's the number one determinant? Who won head-to-head? That's number one tiebreak. Now, yes, Texas lost to 10-2 Oklahoma. Pretty good team. With 15 seconds left, Oklahoma threw a touchdown pass. But Texas went on the road at Bryant-Denny, won by 10, uh, and therefore had to be ranked above Alabama, which I've been saying for a long time. Texas at three, Bama at four. Here is where my rankings would have differed with the college football playoff committee. I would have had Georgia five, okay? Georgia would, in my scenario, have fallen from one to four. And unlike Texas, they didn't beat Alabama. I would have had Alabama in with the tiebreak over Georgia. I would have had Georgia at five. I would have had Ohio State at six. Ohio State's only loss all year on the road at Michigan. I would have had Ohio State at six. I would have dropped Florida State all the way to seven because Florida State, without Jordan Travis, to me, not a top six team in college football. I would have dropped Florida State all the way to seven. Oregon, I would have had at eight. I would have had Ole Miss at nine. And then I would have had probably a tie because I wouldn't have wanted to pick. Probably Mizzou and Penn State at 10 tied uh, for the final top 10. Because I think 10-2 and two Mizzou and 10-2 and two Penn State had very similar resumes. I actually think Mizzou has better wins than Penn State, but Penn State would have better losses. Uh, so that's the way that I would have broken down my finer, final top 10, top 11. I think it's the most rational breakdown of the college football playoff community. By the way, at 12, I would have had Oklahoma. And I think you can argue that Oklahoma deserved to be above Penn State and deserved to be above Mizzou. Just FYI, that's how I would have broken down all those things, right? Um, so, the team that I think actually was should have been the first team on the outside looking in was uh, Georgia, and the next team would be Ohio State. Now, that would have been my five and my six. I would have had Florida State all the way down at seven. Now, the college football playoff committee could do whatever they wanted because basically there's a rationale to do and take whatever argument you want. You could have taken the argument Ohio, uh, that Florida State's 13-0, and doesn't matter who their quarterback is, they should be in the playoff, but I think they would have had 0% chance of winning the college football playoff with their second or third string quarterback based on what we saw against Florida and Louisville. Very good defense. Some people say, well, how can you punish the whole team based on what happens to the quarterback? Quarterback matters more than everybody else. The drop-off between a starting quarterback and a backup quarterback in almost all of college football or the NFL is pretty substantial, particularly if, like Florida State, you have the most talented quarterback in the entirety uh, of your conference, right? I don't think that's a crazy perspective uh, to, to take that Jordan Travis was the best quarterback in the ACC and the drop-off from him to second tier is really, really substantial. 
Hey, Clay Travis right here. Outkick the show is dominating. We're continuing to roll. More coming back in a moment, but first, this. So, that's how I would have uh, broken all of this down uh, as uh, you see the, 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 the play out occurring here. I don't think it was controversial. I think, if anything, the logic and consistency of the college football playoff committee's rankings broke down after you got outside of the top four. And here's what I would say. I feel bad for Florida State. I don't blame anybody who was a, a political figure in the state of Florida, whether it's a governor, senator, or congressman, arguing that Florida State got screwed. If I were a Florida State fan, I would feel like we were getting screwed too. But it's not like I'm an Alabama fan. It's not like I'm a Georgia fan. It's not like I'm a Texas fan or a Washington fan or a Michigan fan. What people have come to realize over time, which is why we have such a big audience, is I'm going to say exactly what I think, and most of the time I'm going to be hyper-logical and hyper-rational. Alabama fans were mad at me because I sold the truth, unlike a lot of media, about the Brandon Miller situation, and now they're looking and saying, oh, well, Clay's now telling the truth about where Alabama should be right. Yeah, of course, because that's what I do. I look at facts, I analyze them rationally, and I tell you what I think makes the most sense. That's my job. I'm in the opinion business. I will tell you exactly what my opinion is. And over time, I think my opinions tend to be pretty entertaining. And on the big issues, not necessarily who's going to win on a week-to-week basis, but should we? is it safe to play sports? Uh, what's going to happen with the cable bundle? Hey, who's going to found a media company and make it worth $100 million? On the big issues, I get them right. Um, and so I think that's how the uh, college football playoff ranking should have gone. Um, now, a couple, uh, couple of other things that are out there. Uh, in the world of uh, sports-ish. The nine-year-old kid who uh, wore the half-red, half-black face paint along with the Chiefs headdress to the Chiefs-Raiders game in Las Vegas last week, his family has demanded an apology and a retraction from Deadspin over Deadspin branding that kid based on only seeing half of his face uh, painted black as a racist. Uh, also, he's Native American, so they're saying that he shouldn't be able to wear, uh, they, they didn't know that he was Native American, so they say he shouldn't be able to wear the headdress, whatever. I applaud this kid's family because I have a nine-year-old. I have a third grader. Uh, he was at the Titans-Colts game yesterday in Nashville. If somebody at a major news organization took a picture of what he was wearing to a NFL game based off what happened to be shown on the screen for a fraction of a second, and they said that he was racist or anything else in writing an article about him, I would say, yeah, that that journalist should be held accountable for going after a nine-year-old kid. And what I would say in general to anyone out there, and if you don't have kids, maybe you're just totally clueless, but if you're an adult and you are attacking a kid, especially an elementary school kid, nine-year-old kids like in third grade. I mean, this is a really young kid. If you are attacking a kid and you are an adult at a media outlet, you are not the good guy, okay? You are the bad guy. I feel bad sometimes now, and you may have noticed that I don't even do it very often anymore, I don't, because of the prominence that I have, I typically don't now on Twitter rip 
college athletes. I don't think I did it this whole year. I don't think I attacked any college athlete for a choice he made for throughout this whole year. Because by and large, now that I'm 44, it feels weird to me to be attacking an 18 or 19-year-old kid. Now, if you're a professional, things are a bit different. But if you're a grown adult and you are attacking a kid for what that kid wore to a sporting event, you are, I think, um, making a, a really, really poor choice as it pertains to what you are doing uh, in that respect. So I would give, uh, again, that this is the me putting my lawyer hat on here for a moment. There is a difference between a public figure and a private figure. People can say all sorts of lies about me because I'm a public figure, and with that public uh, figure dumb comes a different standard by which you can be treated by the media. That's the Times v. Sullivan public versus private figure distinction. I actually think we're, we desperately need an update to the Times v. Sullivan standard, uh, but there is right now a fundamental difference between public and private figure. A kid is a private figure. Now, he was in a public venue at a stadium, and people were commenting off of what was on television, so you can make an argument that that made him a limited-purpose public figure. Again, this is kind of diving into the weeds on this claim, uh, and I don't know what kind of assets, if any, Deadspin has, but I think there is an open argument to be made here, very legit, uh, that Deadspin should be accountable for branding a nine-year-old kid as a uh, racist in this particular uh, matter as uh, as they are accused of, uh, of, of, of doing here based on the article that they wrote. So I would encourage uh, this family to file a lawsuit. I think it could send an important message here. Um, the debate on Wednesday. Let me respond to a couple of uh, text messages uh, that just came in. Um, we're setting up an interview uh, with a public figure. So let me go ahead and respond here. Um, but so to me, this is an important message. Now, I wanted to uh, talk about DeSantis and Newsom. I want to say something super positive. I was up in New York City uh, on Friday. Me uh, from Fox News, Lawrence Jones, and Pete Hegseth, Drew Brees, and uh, Cole Hauser, along with many other people, Frank Siller runs Tunnel to Towers. We raised over $5 million at a gala dinner in New York City for firefighters, for first responders, for police officers, for our military that lose their lives in the line of work. Uh, $5 million to help pay off all of their homes, mortgage-free homes. That's what Frank Siller does with Tunnel to Towers. And he's also now trying to ensure that there are no veterans that are in any way left homeless. And he's doing incredible work. So I was up in New York City. I finished my shows on Wednesday. I flew to New York City. 
I was part of this, uh, part of the event on Friday. Uh, if you can donate at T2T.org, please do. T2T.org, 95.1% of all the dollars that are raised go direct to help people in need. Um, so I was there helping to raise money. I watched as a result on Wednesday night the DeSantis versus Newsom debate on Sean Hannity's program from my New York City hotel room. I thought that DeSantis absolutely obliterated uh, Gavin Newsom. I didn't think this was a remotely close contest. Uh, DeSantis was smart. He was perceptive. He was factually accurate. From the moment this debate started all the way through, I thought that DeSantis obliterated Gavin Newsom. And I was wrong. I'll tell you when I'm wrong. When I expect one thing to happen and something else happens, I legitimately thought, I thought that Gavin Newsom would come off as far more likable and far more intelligent than he did. And I thought he would be the more skilled debater, not because the facts were on his side, but just because he cosmetically emotes better than Ron DeSantis. I was wrong. Gavin Newsom got completely destroyed. And I think it's given Ron DeSantis' campaign some newfound momentum. Now, and by the way, I thought uh, Sean Hannity did a great job hosting that debate. Now, it could be the case that on Wednesday down in Tuscaloosa, Alabama for that debate, that things are altered or changed in some way. But I expect that, uh, that when you look at we are sitting six weeks out from Iowa, that uh, Doug Burgum, by the way, dropped out today. That means, and I think Asa Hutchinson is still in, but I have no idea what he's doing. Right now, there are basically four contenders going head-to-head with Donald Trump. Chris Christie, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, and Vivek Ramaswamy. They are reportedly all going to be on the stage Wednesday in Tuscaloosa. I think before the end of January, we are going to have Trump versus uh, either DeSantis or Nikki Haley. I think that's the way this thing's going to shake out. And DeSantis is putting everything on Iowa. Nikki Haley's kind of balancing her bets, it appears, between Iowa and New Hampshire. I think that Vivek Ramaswamy at some point will drop out and endorse Donald Trump unless he ends up as the alternative, which I don't think he will, based on reading of tea leaves. And I think Chris Christie is going to drop out. I don't just know these things. These things were said to me by Chris Christie and Vivek Ramaswamy on our Clay and Buck radio show. Chris Christie said when he becomes convinced that he cannot be the alternative to Trump, he'll drop out and endorse either Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis. Vivek Ramaswamy said if he's not going to be the alternative to Trump, he will drop out and endorse Donald Trump. And so what we're really deciding now is, is it going to be Nikki Haley or is it going to be Ron DeSantis? I think DeSantis has good momentum right now. I think Nikki Haley also has momentum. So we'll see what happens. But I thought that was the best night of his presidential campaign so far for Ron DeSantis. Reports from Politico that Gavin Newsom's own wife said, we need to throw in the towel. Uh, We're not going to continue here. Uh, When your wife says you can't continue to debate, it's not a good sign for how the debate went. Uh, Speaking of DeSantis, best thing DeSantis did, COVID. There's a study out, probably haven't heard of it, it's not receiving a lot of attention, that masking kids had zero impact in terms of making anyone safer from COVID. 
and I don't know if our team can find the video, but if for our share of this clip, we could grab me talking at my school board back in August of 2021, the data was clear by that point that masking made no difference, that kids were being unfairly required to wear masks, that it was all cosmetic theater. And some of you will recall that I went to my local school board and that I spoke out against a masking requirement that was put in place in Williamson County, Tennessee. The school board got it completely wrong. And I had two kids in Williamson County public schools, and I got up and spoke, not as a radio show host, not as the owner of a media company, but just as a dad who was fed up with the choices that were being made in public school for my kids' education. At that time, I had a fifth grader and a first grader in public school. Full disclosure, I have a third grader in public school right now where we live, and then I have a seventh grader and a 10th grader in private school. So I think what we're going to do is uh, as every one of my kids reaches seventh grade, they're going to go to private school, the school that I think is the best for boys in the entire Nashville area. Uh, all three of my kids, I hope, are going to end up there. Uh, but all my kids went basically to public school K through six. So you get a little bit of a balance between public and private school. As I've said before, I went to public school K through 12. All of my public schools, I was a public school kid. Uh, I have resources now, to be fair, that my own family did not have when I was a kid. So I can afford uh, expensive tuition for my kids to give them the best educational environment and opportunity out there. And that's, to me, the best way that you can spend money. Spend money on your kids' education. Uh, to me, that's the best way that you can possibly give them an advantage maybe that you yourself didn't have. Having said that, I'm a big believer in public schools. I went to public schools K through 12, my own kids, K through six public schools, just FYI, not that all of you need to know that, but I try to be as honest with you every single day. I was 100% right about masking not making sense. Many of you watching or listening to this clip right now were 100% right as well. And if we had an honest media, if we had an honest media, this study that came out over the weekend that is a massive examination of all child masking studies would be out there and every media outlet in the country would be acknowledging what has been the truth for several years now, masking is worthless. Masking kids, even worse than worthless because it actually had a cost. Kids learn how to speak by seeing adults primarily and their teachers watching their mouths move. And there now is a speech pathology crisis in America because so many young kids with speech issues were not able to learn as they ordinarily would have because they had a mask on and because their their teacher had a mask on for two years in many different parts of the country. It was cruel. It was child abuse, in my opinion, and it was anti-science. I spoke out when I was still getting attacked. You can go check out how many people came after me uh, for what I said as a parent. I was right so were many of you. What troubles me is no politicians who were wrong statewide hardly in this entire country lost their jobs for getting everything wrong. I think that is indefensible. 
I think in an honest and just society, we would have had far more consequences levied on everyone for the decisions that they made uh, in this failure. Uh, okay, a couple of other things that I want to hit, uh, but that's important. The masking thing is out, and I will continue to support uh, everyone out there who made the right choice. Um, and uh, and so this will be super interesting to see how all of this uh, shakes out. A couple of other stories that are out there. I don't know how many of you saw this video, but LeBron James, and, and I might mispronounce his name, and I apologize, I'm not the best at pronunciations, Aime Udoka, uh, the current coach of the Houston Rockets, got into it. Uh, they actually uh, tossed Udoka out of the game uh, for saying that he wanted LeBron James to stop bitching after a call. LeBron then walked over to, uh, to uh, the, the Rockets coach, Udoka, and said, hey, don't use that language. Meanwhile, this is LeBron James who listens to and shares all sorts of rap songs with crazy violent lyrics and awful language. I'm not the language police, as you all know. But LeBron says, don't use that language. We're all grown here. And I'm a Udoka, according to the clip that I have seen, which we will clip and share here, basically calls LeBron a bitch for complaining about him saying, stop bitching, and then says LeBron won't do anything about it, uh, and, uh, and then he gets tossed out of the game. But this actually makes me like the Houston Rockets coach way more. LeBron is a supremely talented basketball player, but him being on the court trying to uh, control what an opposing coach is allowed to say is so vintage LeBron because it is what liberals believe, that they should be able, left-wingers believe that they should be able to police what you do or do not say. And uh, frankly, I think that is uh, a sign of liberal failure in this country. A couple of other stories. Uh, I'm in the movie Lady Ballers. Uh, it's a Daily Wire comedy. Uh, it is really funny. I play a women's basketball coach, which is certainly a very ironic perspective for, uh, for me to be uh, doing, that is coaching against a team of men pretending to be women. Not surprisingly, if I were coaching a women's basketball team and I was having them compete against men pretending to be women, I would find that to be completely unacceptable. And that's what I did in the movie. Uh, but I think the movie is funny. I think you will enjoy it. I like the idea uh, that the Daily Wire has of moving beyond commenting on culture on a day-to-day -day basis to actually creating culture. I think the movie is funny, heartwarming, uplifting in a way that I did not anticipate. I was on the red carpet with my wife, Laura. On Wednesday, they had the debut in Nashville, my hometown, where the Daily Wire is based. Um, and I would encourage you guys to check it out. Let me know what you think of my acting performance. Again, I'm not the greatest actor, uh, but I do uh, do uh, my absolute best. Finally, uh, I am. Uh, I was looking at the numbers over the weekend, and well, you know what? I'll save this. I'm going to star this one because I've already gone on for a long time here. I'll talk about Joe Biden's numbers tomorrow. I'll also update you as we will be six weeks and a day less. What is the math on that? Uh, seven times six is what? 42. It'll be 41 days until we're actually going to be uh, at the uh, 
Iowa caucuses when the first people of 2024 are going to be able to cast their vote for president. I appreciate all of you. Uh, my name is Clay Travis. DBAP, unless you need to SBAP, this has been Outkick the Show.